Why me? That's um, a question that we normally ask when something bad has happened to us. What did I do to deserve this? Why am I the one who has lost their job? Why am I the one who is suffering with this illness? Why am I the one trying to keep all these balls up in the air at the same time? Or maybe the typical response of a child when asked to do something. Why me? Why not him? Why not her? But sometimes we may ask it when something good happens to us. The victory speeches at the, uh, the Oscars usually contain a few um, of those who thought, or at least they claimed to think, that, um, uh, that they had no idea they would win. This uh, guy here is uh, Eddie Redmayne, who played Stephen Hawking in the film The Theory of Everything. He won an Oscar earlier this year. There are so many brilliant actors out there. How could it possibly be me that wins this award? Well, this morning we're prompted to ask that same question. Why me? And it's connection with God's mercy. Why should God show mercy to me? Before we come to that, let's have a quick recap on where we've got to in this series in Romans. What is the story so far? Because I know some of you may be joining us um, midway through this. So far we've looked at um, chapters 1 to 3, which was the, the problem. problem being uh, humankind's sin. The fact that everybody's guilty of rejecting God and his value, his glory, um, as the supreme value in our lives. Therefore, we all deserve his just punishment. That is our problem. The solution came next in chapters 3 to 4. That is God's grace. Because Jesus took that punishment that we deserved. As we put our faith in him, we are freed. We are forgiven. We are declared right with God. We looked at the blessings in chapter 5 of what it means to put our faith in, in Jesus. The blessings of peace with God. Of hope for eternity and the last time we looked at the battle the fact that there is still a battle going on within us as as sin is still there this presence of sin is still there and the Holy Spirit is is helping us in that battle but the victory is assured the ultimate victory is assured and so chapter 8 ended on a very positive note of Paul proclaiming his confidence in God's future salvation of his people And the fact that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. But as we uh, go into this next section, running from uh, 9 through to chapter 11, the question is raised, what about Israel? What about Israel? Because Paul would have seen many of the Jews rejecting the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it was because the Jews rejected the gospel that he went on to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, the non-Jews around. So it may appear that God has gone back on his promise to the Jews. And if that is the case, then how can we trust him that he won't go back on his promises to, to us? This is not just a, a doctrinal issue. It's an emotional issue. Because Paul is part of the Jewish race. And so he starts chapter 9 by expressing his anguish over the people of Israel. He's so desperate for the Jews to be saved that he says he'll be willing to be condemned for their sake. And the reason he's so distressed 
is that Israel has been a privileged people throughout their history. He goes on to list all the tremendous blessings they have received. Have a look at um, verse 4 there of, um, of chapter 9. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. It's a bit like, isn't it, when we look at our own country and think of the the great Christian heritage that we have. The fact that the gospel actually came very early, probably in the first century AD. didn't really uh, take off until the sixth century when Augustine of Canterbury unconverted King Ethelbert. But then think of the the great people that have been over time. I've got a few pictures of them coming up. Think of the martyrs of the 16th century Reformation. Think of the Puritans of the, uh, the 17th century. Some of those great preachers of the 18th century, Wesley and Whitfield. And then the great missionaries who went out to the world um, in the 19th century, Hudson Taylor being one of them. And yet, when we look at our country today, we see the undermining of Christian values. We see the rejection of Jesus Christ. And it fills us with despair and anguish. But for Paul, it was a hundred times worse because Israel had this special privileged status as the nation God had first chosen, from whom the blessings would go to the world. And so it seems to Paul that they've lost their privileges. Why is that? Is it, some might say in verse 6, that God's word has failed? Well, Paul says no. And the reason he says that is in verse 6, that for not all who are descended from Israel... Are Israel. In other words, not every descendant of the nation of Israel belongs to the true people of God. Verse 7 continues, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. And in verse 8, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So the question that inevitably arises is, well, who then are the children of the promise? And this is where we're presented with two doctrines which are held together in tension, quite tough doctrines we're looking at this morning. One is God's sovereignty, and the other one is human responsibility. How do we keep those two together? Well, let's look first at God's sovereignty, the fact that he has mercy on whom he chooses. Paul answers the question about who are the children of the promise by referring to the story of Jacob and Esau, the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. And he says, before the twins were born, in verse 11, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. The fact that the choice of Jacob over Esau was made before their birth demonstrates that it wasn't based on anything they did, not on their works, but it was based on God's choice. And so what we conclude from this is that the children of the promise will be those determined by God's sovereign choice. The use of love and hate here um, sounds a bit harsh, but it's really distinguishing between those who God intervenes to choose and those whom he leaves to their own destructive choices. But it just raises the question, doesn't it? Is this fair? 
Or as it says in verse 14, is God unjust? Why should only some of Abraham's descendants be blessed? But of course, justice isn't the issue here, is it? Because if it was based on justice, then we would all be found guilty. None of us would be spared. We looked at that back in chapter 3. Do you remember? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all are guilty. So Paul illustrates this by quoting Moses from the book of Exodus. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And that comes from the episode in Israel's history. Do you remember where they rebelled against God? God gave them the commandments. And uh, they made this uh, golden uh, calf, this idol. God threatened to punish them, punish them in accordance with his justice. But he relented on account of his mercy. And so Paul concludes here, it does not therefore, in verse 16, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. God's choice has nothing to do with who we are descended from, how good we think we are, how much we think we deserve to be saved. It's down to him, his character. And that is good news, because it means that his choice of us is not based on anything we do. And we don't need to worry about that. It's part of his nature to have mercy. And he will have mercy on those whom he chooses. God is free to do as he chooses. Now, of course, that leads to the question in many people's minds, which Paul anticipates here. Then why does God still blame us? Have a look in verse 19. Why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? If becoming a child of the promise depends on God's sovereign choice, those on whom he chooses to have mercy, then why does he still find fault? And Paul answers that objection, first of all, with a strong response. Have a look in verse 20 there. He says, but you, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? It's the same warning that God once um, gave to Israel in Isaiah. He said, woe to him who quarrels with his maker. For us to question our maker is as absurd as a pot questioning the potter. Who are we to accuse the God of the universe? As God, he has the right to do with us as he pleases. If it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be here in the first place. We are the pot, we are not the potter. I think the reason why we often find this difficult to accept is because we want to be the potter, don't we? But we need to accept that God is God. There's nothing new about people questioning God. Remember Job when he was going through that terrible suffering and how he questioned God? Do you remember Jonah who was sent off to Nineveh um, questioning God? Why should God have mercy on that wicked people, he said? And we're just the same, aren't we? When things don't go as we would like them to go, when we can't understand what God is doing, we start to blame God. 
Yes, it's frustrating when there appears to be no change in those we love, those whom we long to come to faith. And yes, it's right to take our concerns to God, our our prayers to God, to pray for them, but we are in no position to tell God what he should do. Our greatest folly is to think that we know better than God. To say God is sovereign doesn't mean that he can do anything with me that I want him to do. It means that as our maker, he can do with me anything that he chooses to do. We're not in control of our lives. Our lives could end tomorrow if God so chooses. Yes, let's make plans, but let's submit them to his will. I don't know what's going to happen to my brother. I don't know what's going to happen to me. Um, But then none of us knows what is going to happen to each one of us tomorrow, do we? Um, But if he has called us, then we know whatever happens to us, it will be for our good. And therefore, praise God for his mercy on you. Because if none of us deserves God's mercy, and yet we, sh- we have experienced his mercy, then that should make us really humble, shouldn't it? That should make us praise God. As we saw last Sunday evening, our praise of God completes our joy in him. Our greatest joy comes not from being praised by other people. Our joy comes from praising God. And praising God helps us to trust God that he loves us, that he will do whatever is best for us. Let's just turn back to uh, chapter 8 of Romans, the the chapter before. It's um, some verses we looked at very briefly last time. But have a look again at verse 28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Paul is saying that Changing us to be more like Jesus is something that he predestined way back in the past before he created the world. His calling us, his justifying us, making us right with him is something that he did because he already knew us. And when Jesus comes again, he will glorify us, he will give us perfect glorified bodies. So if he's always acted for our good and will in the future act for our good, then we can trust him, we can praise him, that everything he does for us now is for our good as we become more like Jesus. Let's turn to another great passage on on election, Ephesians chapter 1. Because here again we see that God's election is a great cause for us to praise him. Page 1173. Have a look at Ephesians 1 verse 5. It says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And have a look on verse 11 as well. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, 
who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. It's a humble reminder that if we have been saved, it's because of God's work mercy and not because of anything we have done for which we might be tempted to be pleased with ourselves. And Paul writes to those who become Christians in Thessalonica in the letter to the Thessalonians. What does he say? What does he say? Well done for believing. Good on you. No, this is what he says. He says, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you, he says, to do this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. But coming back to to Romans 9, the question still remains, isn't it? Do the people of Israel carry any responsibility themselves? Do we carry any responsibility ourselves? And for that, we need to look at the end of chapter 9 and going into chapter 10. What is the basis on which the people of Israel thought that they had been saved? Well, as we saw earlier in Romans, we become righteous, we're made right with God as we put our faith in what Jesus did for us on the cross, trusting that he paid that penalty that we deserved and he satisfied God's justice. We are unable to achieve righteousness in our own efforts. Now, the people of Israel, however, thought that if they kept the law perfectly, they would be okay. Have a look at verse 30 of chapter 9. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. And it carries on, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. This quote from Isaiah about the stone is referring to Jesus. It's also quoted in 1 Peter 2. For those who believe in Jesus, he is a chosen, he's a precious cornerstone. He's a stone that holds a building together. And we're, put, we're told the one who puts their trust in him will never be put to shame. But for those who rejected Jesus, who disobeyed the message, he becomes a stone that causes people to stumble. Jesus is saviour, but he's also judge. Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfil the law. And what he meant by that was that he was the one to whom the law was pointing He was the only one who could perfectly keep the law. And so the law is now no longer relevant because it's by trusting in Jesus that we are saved. Israel didn't trust God and his promises that he would save them through a Messiah. And so when Jesus came with that message of salvation, they rejected him. Look at what it says in verse 16 of chapter 10, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. 
Or verse 21, concerning Israel, he says, All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Now this is not to say that God has totally rejected um, his historical people. And we haven't got time today to go into chapter 11 in, in detail. But there we see that there is a remnant chosen by grace. That's what it says. And it refers to the story of Elijah. Do you remember Elijah? When he became totally depressed... He despaired that he thought he was the only one left of Israel. And God said to him, look, I've reserved for myself 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There is a remnant who will carry on. And he talks about as he cuts off branches of the olive tree, referring to Israel, he's still able to graft them back into the tree. So the way to God is still open to both Jews and non-Jews. And that is made clear in chapter 10, verse 9. Have a look at verse 9. This is the way to salvation for everybody. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. A scripture says anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jew or non-Jew, we all face the same choice. Will we call on Jesus to save us from the consequences of being separated from God? Which only he can do. Will we accept Jesus as Lord of all? And rather than worry about um, whether or not we have been chosen, the question is, actually, do you see your need to be saved? Do you want to be saved? Have you called out to Jesus? And if not, why not? What if we are saved, though, if we, we have experienced God's mercy? How does Paul respond to this knowledge of God's sovereignty? Does he just sit back and wait for God to choose his people and elect them? It doesn't, it doesn't does he? No, he, he calls people through the proclaiming of the gospel. Look at, on at verse 14, what it says there. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching or literally proclaiming to them? And how can anyone proclaim unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The wonderful truth of this passage is that salvation is available to all who call on the name of the Lord. And if we're Christians here, it's not up to us to decide who will accept that message, who won't, who God has chosen, who he hasn't. It's up to us to tell everybody to proclaim the gospel. If someone is going to be saved, they have to hear the message. Well, we could spend ages on this subject, and I know it's probably thrown up a lot of questions in many of your minds, and um, if you want to um, pursue it further, then do have a word with me. There's some stuff I can, can give you to help you. Um, there's also a very good study guide on this book of Romans by St. Helens, which 
Um, I'd recommend this one here, Read, Mark, Learn. Great to do if you've got a prayer triplet, if you're on a prayer triplet, it's got questions in it, um, a good way of getting into it in more detail. But ultimately, what does Paul do with all this? Having explained it to, to us, what do we do with it? Have a look at um, the end of chapter 11. Because it finishes with praise, doesn't it? And that's what we're going to do as we come to the Lord's table. We're going to finish by acknowledging the, uh, the wonderful ways of God. We can't fully understand them. And in some ways we're not meant to. We understand what we need to understand. Let's praise God for his ways. So let me finish before we have some more worship and then go to the Lord's uh, table by reading the doxology from verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.